Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, you're with me, Megan O'Hara-Sullivan, and we're on Big Little Small Talk. This afternoon, I have a young girl called Bronte McVeigh with me, and she's lots of things, but least of all, she's a millennial. So (laughs) I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes people a bit younger than me sometimes almost seem like a a foreign body. Um, So Bronte's going to tell us all about the things that she's been doing in the Toowoomba region, but also um, some of her life experiences and how she's got to be where she is today. So welcome along, Bronte. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to be here. (laughs) Now, Bronte, you and I met because you were doing a project called The Living Library. Can you tell me and the listeners what The Living Library is about? Of course, yes. Yeah. So the Living Library is really a, a social inclusion concept. I first became aware of it maybe five or six years ago. I stumbled across a page um, on Instagram and from there read up a few articles about this beautiful initiative which started in Denmark called the Human Library Project, which is probably the more well-known iteration of, of a Living Library Project. Um, and really it, it was all about facilitating these compassionate curious conversations between peoples from all all different walks of life um, but particularly those from really marginalized groups of the community um, and and putting them in a position in cre- creating space rather where people could come and ask them questions um, and they could be um, really blunt questions that you know we perhaps might all have you know about the, those stereotypical ideas we have a have about people that we all naturally form over our lifetime um, and the concept is really that through those conversations hearing someone's stories and being able to ask questions in a really safe place that those those barriers um, that really se- can separate us are broken down and it, really through the simple idea of just having a chat and that it's called a library effectively because it operates very much like a real library um, only that instead of of checking out books um, in a living library project the readers will the readers or the borrowers will check out people for five or ten minutes and really as I said just just ask them a whole array of questions it's since the development of the human library project project there's been lots of different similar kind of um, projects that have emerged around the world Um, the most well-known one in Australia has probably been the ABC program you can't ask that Um, which was a fabulous is is a was a fabulous program and really encapsulates exactly what the human project is about the human library project is about which is just asking those weird and awkward questions which people even if you know that they feel rude asking but which those questions are so important to ask so those stereotypes and and ideas can be broken down yeah so um you um where did you run your living library project is this the first one that you've run yeah this is my i I was waiting for years and years and years hoping that someone would start it in Toowoomba. I thought there must be a million people who've who've read about this this type of initiative before me and I thought for someone someone will pick this up, someone amazing will pick this up and run with it and get it started and I can't wait to go along. And then I thought one day, "Oh my gosh, I've got, you know, I've got some time. I've got the interest. Why don't I take a bit of a leap of faith?" Um and you know, I had no experience, no idea what I was doing. Um, so I thought, you know, it's up to, sometimes it's up to us to, to implement, you know, the projects that we want to see. So I reached out to the Toowoomba Library um, and their team really guided me through the process. They were just amazing. They took it on without question and they were the ones to suggest that we actually run it as part of this year's Wear It Purple's Day, uh, Wear It Purple Day um, as a first as a first run of it and that's really how it all started so it was run outside the Toowoomba City Library as part of the the Wear It Purple Market Day stall so we we were set up as part of a part of those festivities which was amazing. Okay so you might just need to um, tell myself and other listeners what Wear It Purple Day is. 
So it's an annual celebration, um, effectively, of the LGBTIQA plus community, um, particularly for the youth community. In Toowoomba, it was run by the beautiful people at Youth Connect, and there were storeholders from so many different groups across Toowoomba, including um, Peabody. Um, we've got, we had, as I said, Youth Connect ran it, inclusive counselling. Um, really, all these people came together to celebrate what it means to be a rainbow young person in our community. And it's about making them feel safe, making them feel celebrated, and making sure that they, they know they do have a place within our community. And I just, I'm so grateful that we were able to run our first living, living library as part of that, because that's exactly what it's about. And making sure that young people have the ability to tell their story in a safe environment, I think is so important in building the communities of tomorrow. So when the library suggested to you that you were going to do it as part as we're at Purple Day, did that sort of throw you a bit? Like, did you think... Well, I'm a married um, <laughs> woman. You know, what do I know about about you know being part of the LGBTIQ community? Yeah, absolutely. And I I almost had that that exact feeling of you know, do I have any right to have any role in this? Do I have any role in this? I certainly have a lot of friends as part of the the rainbow community, but having friends and and living the experiences are two wildly different. Um, perspectives so I definitely had that moment where I, I kind of took pause and I thought do I have any role to play do I have any right to mm. be involved in this and I suppose the resounding answer I came back was yes because you know being a married white young female means that I haven't actually experienced so much of the discrimination um, that these young people feel so I think everyone has a role to play and it really wasn't about me at all it, it and it wasn't about the person running it and these libraries are never about the people who are running it or behind the scenes it's about the books and the readers they're our they're the brave ones they're the ones telling their story um so if i can do a, any small part in in creating space for that um and then stepping back and letting letting those stories speak for themselves i felt I felt like I could do that in a in, in a compassionate way, um, and the books, as I said, the books were just am amazing, and as were the people who who borrowed them. You know, it takes great bravery, I think, to ask people questions and and put yourself in that position to challenge your own stereotypes. That's that's a really big form of bravery. So. Mm. I want to talk to you about the books in a second, but mm. what I did read about um, some of the Living Library projects, um, particularly, I don't know whether it was the first one, um, the Danish one that started in 2000, but it said, um, we want to provide a place where difficult questions are expected, appreciated and answered, which I thought was lovely. So how did you go about selecting your books? I think we, we took a very considered approach I would say for our for our first one knowing that it was a youth event we our priority was keeping our books safe safe protected um, and to make sure that those conversations were respectful at all times um, so we briefed them it is really about briefing them and making sure we are selecting if for the first book we really just reached out to people within our network and Megan you'd remember you've put me in touch with some fabulous books um, as well so it was really just through word of mouth we were selecting books for this this particular event being our first event who were already very vocal um, about um, the rainbow experience and who we felt could really speak to it with confidence um, we weren't it, so we had people from we had a beautiful parent from P Flag who came along to speak about the parent experience of having a young person. So we talk about that. What's what is P Flag? So P Flag is is effectively, I suppose, if I can butcher the concept, and they'll have to forgive me, um, is all about the parents, the parents and friends um, of children, you know, of children um, or, or kids, and the and the youth who. So they're not directly, you know, they might not directly be members of the rainbow community, but they have that connection and they 
are walking their children through it or walking other children through it and walking other parents through the experience for the first time and they're such they're such a beautiful group of of, of parents of mums and dads and I think talking to them it really showed to me the need for them because some of them were saying that you know we're mums and dads and lots of kids come to us when their mums and dads either don't know that they're you know that they're in the process of you know they haven't come out yet or they haven't they haven't felt safe to share that yet and they need a mum or dad figure in their life um so it's for the kids and then it's for other parents who you know their child might be talking about transitioning and they have you know that's completely uncharted waters for most people and what a terrifying experience and responsibility and you as a parent and I'm not you know lucky enough to be a parent yet myself but I imagine you just want to do it right but without a rule book how do you do it so it's this amazing resource for for everyone for this knowledge sharing of and and just the support you know support from all levels um and they do they do incredible work across the board and we were very grateful to have mm-hmm. to have them in our so library you had someone from the p flag yeah. who else did you have we also had a local school teacher and who's also oh, a, a counselor rather who works in a local high school and i came across um her during when i was working at one of the schools in toowoomba she's um you know pr- proudly proudly out and about she's got two beautiful children um so I felt that she was a really interesting book from for many levels because her herself um you know has gone through that experience she's gone through surrogacy as part of a gay couple um her daughter came along which was beautiful and offered her insight as as a rainbow child if that's if that's the right terminology um and she's also a a psychologist so being able to to speak to issues of the impact of of events like we're at purple the impact of discrimination the the issues that young people face in schools her expertise and her ability to bring all of that together was invaluable i think Mm. i think so that those two did you have any other do you have a third one didn't you we did um and he he was a, a former school teacher and now is a, a, a incredibly talented graphic artist and we reached out to him because of his his connection to faith and how his experience with navigating his sexuality working in a catholic school his um, religious beliefs in general and how that all works together so while everyone had you know the common a common rainbow experience they all really had very different stories and perspectives to share i really love the variety that you had there bronte so they were your books and then you had some people come along so did they um ask their own questions or did you help them along a little bit with some questions that you might have thought that could be good questions to ask well i have to i was very i was very excited to prepare some pre prepared questions because I thought oh this will put everyone's mind at ease um I'll put them in a little envelope leave them on the desk make them all glittery and fabulous and easy to reach for um so there's no those awkward silences um and not one of them got used not one of them which I was so pleased about disappointed that no one got to see my rainbow glitter questions (laughs) but so pleased that everyone really had a backlog of questions and even um my my husband Jake he came along and was one of the borrowers and I don't think he went in it thinking he'd have any questions he had you know he didn't think about it beforehand but when just through the natural flow of conversation and just reading reading or talking to someone about what they do what experiences you know they want to talk about he really it really prompted him to have a think about oh look I've always wanted to ask this or I've always wondered about this how do I approach the you know how do I navigate that and some of it some of the questions that um I caught up with some of the readers afterwards and asked you know if you don't mind sharing what type of questions were you asking and it was mainly like look we've got someone in the workplace who who has changed their pronouns to they them I keep messing it up I keep messing it up and I don't know whether to ignore the fact that I've messed up and just continue with the conversation do I apologize do I speak to them about it and say look I'm not doing this intentionally I'm just 
it's just a memory thing and I, I really want to support you and I want you to know that what would you want to know you know what would you want me to do in that situation and I felt like that was a really beautiful question because I'm not sure I would go up to someone and ask that you know in in a work setting you know happy Monday morning here's your coffee you know, what's the pronoun thing about, you know, I keep getting it wrong, you know, help me through this, those conversations, there's just not time in the day. Um, And there's just not the space to do it. People don't want to offend anyone. Exactly. I've got a very similar story. My little nephew is gay. And um, I said to him one time, he and his partner and I were going out to see some comedy that I'd bought him as a Christmas present. And I said, so, boys, what will I say? Will I say queer? Will I say gay? Will I say, you know, queen, whatever? And my little nephew turned to me and he said, just say people, Megan. <laughs> like, and I thought, yes, duh, that's <laughs> right. Just say people. Like, yes. And it was so beautiful in its simplicity. And just before we go off the, the Living Books project, just as an example, I, I was reading, um, I, I don't know whether it was a session, but in this one um, group of books that that someone had, they had someone who had bipolar, someone who had body mod extreme, who was sort of covered in tattoos and facial piercings and all this, Mm. and uh, someone from the homeless community. And I thought, isn't that just a a great diverse group of people? Yeah, Mm. that, um, that you can... So for you, Bronte, what are you envisaging you will do with this from here? Where, what would you like to do? I would really grow it to something exactly what you just described. So in addition to doing events like we're at Purple Day where you have more of a genre being explored um, or, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month, you know, perhaps, you know, having some books specifically to speak to that experience, um, I would love to build it up to more casual events where it's, you know, the library's just a few chairs are popped out on a Tuesday once a month in the afternoon or in the morning. There's a few cups of tea ready to go and we've got exactly what you've just described, that diverse range of of stories to tell. Um, I think there's so much diversity. There's so many stories to tell um, that I don't think we're ever going to be short of books. Mm. Um, so Bronte, are, do you, are you so interested in this project what's your motivating thing like is it because you are interested in people's stories or do you feel for the marginalized or what 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 is or you 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 know like of organizing events or what (laughs) I think it's a combination of all those things I, I I my dad um I've been asked that question a few times and I'm the probably the chattiest person you'll ever meet if I meet someone on the street you'll be stuck with me for 45 minutes. Absolutely. So, and I'm sure there's a few listeners that have probably accidentally got stuck with me at traffic lights and regret <laughs> regret it. But I just, my dad really instilled that in me from a really, really young age, um, that everyone has a story to tell. And it's so important to have that natural curiosity. So we'd be We'd just be driving home from school and he'd see a man on the street and he'd just make comments being like, I wonder what he's doing. I wonder what story he has to tell. Um, Or there'd be a gecko on the fence. He'd be like, if that gecko could talk, I wonder the stories he'd share. You know, imagine the places he's been. And he's still like that. You know, I went to visit him in Tassie and and some, it was swans, swans, swam past oh imagine if they could talk Bront how amazing would that be I wonder you know they could tell us what they see from up there so it extends to to, he just has a natural curiosity for people and I've just always had that as well I just love listening to people I love hearing about people's perspectives I think why I, I went into law was because it's people and why I loved family law so much is because it's about people's stories and you know more often they're not they're not nice stories they're really horrible traumatic stories there's there's some really terrible chapters in people's lives but I just I liked being able to hear them and I think that's really important I think stereotypes discrimination that won't go away until we realize that there's there's stories to be told and and we've got to listen first Mm, beautifully said too and I'll just remind the listeners that you're with me Megan O'Hara Sullivan and we're talking today with Bronte McVeigh who ran an event recently called the Living Library and she's explaining her motivations behind wanting to do it and how the joy that she got out of it as well 
Bronte, you mentioned that you did law. I just want to back up just a tiny bit. Um, when you were in high school, I believe you went overseas and did some study away. Can you yeah, tell us about that? When I was in uni, actually. Oh, okay. So it was, I think it was about my my fourth or fifth year in uni. I um, I got a scholarship to go over over to Boston to do a summer program at Harvard, um, which was very – I hate to say it because it sounds so – it sounds so. I'm, I'm sounds full of so myself. Great. No. It sounds so great. <laughs> sounds like I got tickets on myself, and I bought up bought up their entire merch shop on my first day there. I was so excited, and that that was a really transformative experience for me. You know, I'm a very outgoing person. You know, I'm introverted in terms of where I get my energy from. But I, as I said, I love people, making friends, and you know, being in new environments is is really exciting for me. Um, but the study, I loved the study and it was, I think the first time in my study I didn't, hadn't worked. So I was really just able to pour myself into it. And at that time I was thinking I would go into um, intellectual property law. So I, I loved film and television and the art. So I thought that's where I would go. And then I had um, chose a political science course as well. So it was international law so that was more about human rights treaties um which if i didn't go into ip i imagine imagined at that point that's where i would would end up as well but it was just the most phenomenal experience to do and it was i think it ended up being a bit over two months it was all intensive so it was classes nearly every day and i just loved it just loved every second and Mm. i'm so grateful i got to do that it's such an amazing thing to have on your CV too, my <laughs> godfather. And coming from a um a family like McVeigh's, I think having a bit of political science behind you might um might just yeah. not, not go astray. I just I started imagine. dating Jack at that point, so maybe there was a little bit of that. I need to <laughs> I need to brush up on my political skills as well. <laughs> well, I don't know that um you would need to. So um you you came back and you finished you finished your degree, and then where did you go to from there? What did you start doing then? So I was, in my final year, I was already working. Um, I'd been working at a a firm in Brisbane, um, initially just as a little mailroom clerk, delivering mail. Um, And then after I came back from Harvard, I I was offered a paralegal role. And then from there, a graduate position. So I was really fortunate um, to stay with that firm, which I absolutely loved. And and still, you know, if I was to go back to Brisbane, I'd I'd be on the phone to them straight away. It's, it was a beautiful firm, McCullough Robertson. Um, and so I started in litigation, civil litigation there, and then moved over to the employment team, So, which to me sounded really boring initially, but lo- I loved employment. I loved, and I loved litigation. I loved, I love writing. So the drafting, which, you know, the affidavits and the arguments. I actually am a very conflict-averse person. I, I, I crumble under confrontation. I'm, I have no skills in that area in a personal capacity, but I loved the behind-the-scenes strategy. And I loved working with people who were really good at what they do, and they were really good people I got to work with, and they really looked after me and, and gave me a lot of confidence, I think. Um, they, they threw me in the deep end from... from my get-go from the get-go I was and it was huge work huge hours huge intensity um don't think I could do it now as an old woman at 30 (laughs) but it was great the people the people was were were wonderful and I eventually decided to move back to Toowoomba to be this is where my my now husband had had set up shop um I'd always imagined I'd come back home eventually um, when we were wanting to start a family and settle down. So um, I eventually had to kind of pull myself away from McCullough. And at that point I thought, you know, I love so many parts of the law, but I'm exhausted. I am absolutely exhausted. And I am, to my detriment, a person that doesn't do things. I, I tend to throw myself a little too hard into things and take on too much. That was entirely really my fault. But I needed a break. Um and I've been suckered back into law multiple times since then. <laughs> People have have kind of come out of the, some friends have kind of convinced me to come back. And um, so I, I've gone back and forth since then. And with my m- most recent um, stint in family law, which I started two years ago, 
um, after a, a great friend of mine reached out to me and said, come and come and work with me. Um, and that was brand new, brand spanking new family so rule. tell me about that. I mean, for someone who's conflict averse, <laughs> that is pretty... Um, pretty harsh and and not pretty harsh very harsh and very uh would be a minefield I would imagine to navigate so how did you go with that let alone you know that is people's lives that well it's all people's lives but these are children and um you know people trying to get the best deal for themselves I guess in any relationship breakdown it's it's tough if it's the toughest area of law I've ever worked in um and a lot of people tried to talk me out of going into it because they they probably know me very very well and you know if someone frowns at me on the street I'll I'll kind of mull over that for weeks and think gosh I probably should have smiled harder probably should have pulled them aside for a chat um and there was just something in me that felt I just need to do this there's something that's calling me to do this and I loved the idea that it was ordinary people until that point I'd really been dealing with big business um, which has its own, you know, there's a lot of great, great parts of that. But I really wanted to sit across from someone just like me. And I thought as hard as it is, and I don't think I've been in it long enough to build up the mental resilience not to take it home and not to be affected by it. And I always thought that's just something, that's that's the trade-off for me. But I get to also help people through some of the most challenging times what is probably the most challenging time in their life and I get to I I get to be the one to walk them through that and if you know if I'm a little bit more stressed then at least I'm making an impact and I hope uh, and I, I, I hope that my clients you know felt like that they, they certainly weren't getting a um tick and flick lawyer I suppose with me I, I do I do really, really care. And you think that they might have been paying you to get away? Yeah. <laughs> it's too much time with the lawyer. Yeah, yeah. gosh, she talks a <laughs> <You> lot. Talk. <laughs> I'll just remind the listeners that you're on from Big Little Small Talk with me, Megan O'Hara Sullivan. And today we're talking to Bronte McVeigh, who has run a living library here in the Toowoomba region, but she's t- telling us about her career as a lawyer at the moment. So Bronte, you'd been working for quite a while and are you still working now or what's happening with your your career and your life? So I um I was I took I decided it was uh, I use the word I decided fairly loosely um because the decision was really made kind of by outside factors for me but I I had to kind of take a step away from from law in July. Um, this year just because my my health had deteriorated to a point where I was really just barely barely surviving I think and there the people around me and particularly my my beautiful husband um, was the one that was like you know you just you need to to pull up stumps and actually people at work I think as 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 much as I tried to hide my own kind of health issues um, tell me tell me yeah. about your health issues what, what's happening with your health so when I mo- first moved back to Toowoomba I think it was I think it was the burnout that and that's what the, the doctors always said that may have triggered it um where my my seizures which I had as a kid as epilepsy made a really really sudden sudden and swift return <laughs> um and it was I was still working at the time. I'd started working at um at another firm in Toowoomba, which I loved as well, but started having daily seizures um, and then multiple seizures a day. So it went untreated for about six months when we were trying to work out maybe it's other causes, you know, what's going on. And then got in with a, a fabulous GP, um, had to go down that pathway had to pull up stumps again with lawyering because they said it's it's too unsafe you're having them too frequently and you're going to hurt yourself you know you so and again it wasn't me that um I had to be told I had to really be pulled kicking and screaming at that point um because I thought I could just fight through it um and put on a brave face um and it's really been probably not until recently where it's there's been a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel it's been a very very intense intense road I think and I do get a bit emotional talking about it 
only because this is the first time I've I've stopped to think about I think how how hard it's been and because I don't I think working in family law so many people have it so much harder you know I'm so lucky I'm so lucky to have the family and support I have have had the education I've had so I I felt like I you know there was that relative you know I've got it yeah I'm in a lot of pain and it's I'm struggling but someone's got it worse Bront so Mm. but Bronte are you um epilepsy is not not coping with stress <laughs> epilepsy is a neurological disease yeah. so no i'm serious like yeah, no. why would you think that you're sort of almost shirking your work because your epilepsy has made a, a sudden onset and sort of a momentous return yeah i think because it was so complex um as well you know some tests would come back really clear epilepsy others would come back there's nothing there but their seizures were incessant um and they you know on all all my doctor's appointments you know it's medically complex they describe me as um because they've they don't really they haven't really been able to figure out what's wrong they know it's bad they know we need to manage it really carefully um but in terms of treatment there really has been nothing that's worked well until recently when I've I've taken that time off being supported by my work to do that where I told them I'm going off my epilepsy medication because I have to try new things it's not working give me a week give me a week and I'll be back and they said let's give it a month let's give it a month I said oh okay well let's let's say a month but if I'm back before then wink wink that'll be great so you know, keep my office open. I'll be back soon. Um, and now it's a. I went back to them. I said I was so so wrong. You know, I was in. I was so bad. It came back with such a vengeance again, um, and it was a really really rough few weeks there. Um, but in that time, we we've been able to find new doctors um, with fresh perspectives, new treatment pathways, and I effectively you know said said to work like this is what's going on I don't know I don't know how long this is going to take but I'm at the point in my life it's probably I need to take this seriously or I'm or it's not going to end well um and I could look more I look more at the impact of it has on others you know the impact it has on my husband is and he'd never say but you know seeing him stressed was what did it for me I thought you know he just you know, he just adores me and you see that, you know, we've been together 10 years and he still walks through the door and you just think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I found someone who's this, adores me this much. Why on earth? Hang on to him. I say. <laughs> hang on, hang on. <laughs> so it was just, um, it was really bad. It takes you to some dark places, I think. Um, just the thought that you'll never be able to get a treatment that's going to work. Yeah, yeah. just that hopelessness. Right. Um and by that point after I've been been dealing with it now for over five years of of fairly consistently the same intensity of you know I'd, I'd go to social events have a seizure in the bathroom and I'd be too embarrassed to say anything so I'd kind of just pull myself together and walk out and pretend it was normal and I would do that all the time and it was bad it so was how bad. long would a seizure last for? Is it all? Is it all different? Yeah. Different times, different types yeah, of things. I yeah. mean, I'm um, imagining sort of um, seizures where you're lying on the floor and someone's, you know, making sure you're not choking on your tongue. I mean, yeah. sorry, you know, no. this might be a bit of a, um, a living library type moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is, yeah. isn't it? Um, I myself think I don't really have a story to tell, but I guess it would be interesting. It's become so, so normal to me. But yeah, I'm I'm fully fully unconscious um I'm breathing but it's shallow so I think that can be very stressful for people sometimes I get a bit of a warning that it's happening I might have a few minutes in which case I would just call call Jake and say can you can you get here quickly and get me home sometimes he would be able to get there quick enough other times he wouldn't and he'd find me on the floor at work um or you know my beautiful paralegals would or someone else um so I'd be out for maybe between three and six minutes usually would wake up very confused initially um I, I find I have a bit more clarity now but 
for a few, particularly in the first two years, I I would have huge lapses in memory. So we had, I felt like I was on 51st dates because we had sticky notes around the house just telling me where I was because I just, I always thought I was back at my parents' home in Brisbane or at Jake's parents' home and I just couldn't quite, quite um, locate myself and that was quite scary to me. So if I was in a new environment and I didn't recognise the carpet where I woke up from, that that would be scary. And I always think the seizures are actually the least stressful part for me. It's it's waking up from them, which is 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 it. And I say traumatic because I guess it it did become and it has become traumatic for me. The anxiety of being in a public place, all of that. You know, after I think pushing that down for a long time, those fears really surfaced at the beginning of this year. Where I thought I'm so scared. I'm so, you know, I got married last year and I was so scared of having one walking down the aisle because I thought, oh my gosh, how embarrassing, you know, like I can't control it and sometimes I just don't see them coming and I can do everything right, you know, I can be having the best day and so often I was having the best day and it would come along and ruin it and it was that lack of control was was a really frightening thing which I would say only really hit me in the past two years where it became really crippling that that fear of of the unknown and and the impact it has on other people because mm. of course I don't want to scare anyone with it um, and people are so beautiful mm. with it you know I've never woken up and no one's ever you know I don't know. No, of course they're <laughs> not, not going to give you a hard time. That's right, except what you would be expecting. No. <laughs> Bronte, that is an amazing story. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of people... I don't, I don't think epilepsy is really discussed very much, is it? It's not... No, and it's such a complex... Again, and we're looking at the moment where we're moving away from an epilepsy diagnosis and that in itself has been challenging because that felt quite clean to me. Um, and now they're looking into... and you know more neurological issues you know really really severe migraine conditions and headache conditions and syncope and all these words um, and I just came from a doctor's appointment where all those words were thrown around and I thought I don't know what anything means anymore and when I first met with the neurologist five years ago I think his opening statement to us was we know so little about the brain we know so little about how it works um, and I thought okay <laughs> Excellent. What have I got? Excellent. Mm. And really, in the beginning, it was it was let's put you on medication and let's get you into a psychologist to come to terms with this is your life. You know, this is as maybe as good as it gets from here on out. And that has been a harder pill to swallow, I think, as I've got older. But again, now that I've given myself the time and we've got fresh perspectives, I think for the first time in a long time, I've got a bit of hope again and it's given me time to focus on things that I love again you know I love photography I love traveling and I've been able to do I've always done it on the side a bit of photography but I've started my own little photography business and that has been so so important for my healing I think and that creative energy I think has been has given me confidence back again that I can mm. be this full full person mm. you well know. you better give your photography business a little Bronte bit Elizabeth like... photography everyone and Bronte <laughs> Elizabeth photography. I think what do you love doing do you love you know taking pictures of kids or weddings or a, none of the above a bit of everything I did um film and television in school and I I kept I, it was part of my arts degree at uni as well film and television and I I just loved I loved film and I love photography so I've always always had a camera um, really close by ever since really high school when I first got to do it and never really imagined myself doing it professionally or getting paid to do it and I still think that's wild that people are reaching out and you know driving from the Sunshine Coast to see little old me it's very weird but beautiful um, but I love at the moment I'm loving families I just and it's all these beautiful families Toowoomba is such a, an amazing place because there's just always a connection and I love that I love that it's someone's you know friends friends and I went to school with them when I was little or you know I you know they know my dad you know or they lived on the same street as I did or they went to the same primary school I just and I love seeing these beautiful young families or old families you know going through their chapters it feels like a real privilege to be invited into their little family bubble 
But I think from what I know of you, you probably love the ones who you don't know either and yeah. are new here and new migrants and, you know, lots of other things. You yeah. don't have that really long Toowoomba connection, you know, yeah. that they're all welcome here as well. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to have to move on because I'm going to run out of time oh. because I wanted to talk to you about specifically yeah. about being a millennial. So <laughs> I'm looking up what are the characteristics of millennials and already Ooh. you've already um, mentioned one about um, being free thinking and creative. So you know, there's always this whole thing about, um, you know, millennials versus boomers, blah, blah. Um, but I thought, I think it's interesting about um, people com- complain or, or praise millennials because you want meaningful motivation. Like you don't mm. want to work for necessarily monetary gains, mm. but for your own sense of satisfaction do you think that's a broad generalization or do you think that is something common to you and your friends I suppose I can only speak to my recent experience where I've I I said to someone recently I think I've been creatively in the closet because and you know law I love it for so many reasons but it's a really stable well-paying job that you tell anyone you're a lawyer and they go, ooh, you know, and it's and you, you feel that sense of, ooh, okay. like. But there was something in me really missing. And now that I'm doing photography, living more creatively, living p- purely for something I love, and I, I never got that saying with people, like, I love what I do. You know, I really love it and I do it for free. I was like, would you though? But with photography, I would, and I have done. So I, I think for me, I suppose I hate generalities because I, I think it's just so specific, but I love that. I love that that you can have all these opportunities to do what you want to do. Um, and I think there's lots of ways to get it, that you can have your nine to five. You know, you can still do that. You can have that structure. And, who you know, who can, who can make a full-time income off their passion? You know, it's not always there. That doesn't mean you can't explore it. So I think with millennials, if I can speak more broadly, I think we're just more open to the idea of the nine to five doesn't have to be it. You can have a side hustle. You can you can take little photos, you know, on the side. You can travel. You can do all these things to make yourself this complete person. And I, I really love that. I really love that. I think we've got a lot to learn from the millennials just quietly being a Gen X myself. But I did read this um, whole questionnaire that um, or a question, BuzzFeed did a um, questions to ask of millennials, mostly because they'd done one uh, uh, about the baby boomers. And um, so they thought they better be fair. Now, you tell me what you um, what you think about this. So number one, this is a question um, to ask millennials. It says, brah, why do millennials always break out into song when they get upset? Do you think that's fair enough? I'm trying to think. But the last time I was upset, well, see, I just had a little tear just then and I haven't broken out. You haven't broken out and so on. All right, well, what about this one? But I would blame high school musical for that. Okay, all right. (laughs) Why do millennials put lol after every sentence? Oh, I don't know. And now I think. Do you do that? I do it ironically, but now oh, I. Oh, ironically! But I started I it ironically, but now I just do it. Well, that was the other thing that I read that they do the emojis ironically, and I think is that true? No, I just. How think, do you do an ironic emoji? I don't. I think I'm too much of a dag to answer these questions. I'm so <laughs> dorky. <laughs> You're not your typical millennial. All right. Well, why do millennials send dozens of rapid-fire single-line text messages oh, in a row? I do do that. Yes. Why? I think I, my, I just have a lot of thoughts and sometimes my dad, I can only compare it to what my dad sends me and they're beautiful texts but they are paragraphs and he numbers his paragraphs. Oh. So he says, one, saw a beautiful bird today. Wondered what it was thinking. Wondered what it was thinking. <laughs> Two, you know, got some bread for mum. We're having scones for lunch. Three, and I have to respond to him. I have to copy and paste it into another document and then respond to him <laughs> so I don't miss anything. Where if I send him text, it's like, oh my gosh, dad, love you. Just thinking of you. And it is. It must be really, <laughs> must be actually really stressful to get that many messages in a row. Well, my kids do it too. I don't know and what I it is. I've never figured out. And back in the day where you paid per text, I always oh. thought, you're wasting money. Yeah. You're on every single We text. should be better at that. You would think so, wouldn't you? One cent text maybe undid that for us. <laughs> just tell me, what does your dad do for a living? He's actually just retired, which is amazing. Is he an amazing. engineer? No, no. He's actually, he was um, 
in he was managed prisons so he was in um corrective services queensland so he was one of the um assistant directors there for really his entire life so us growing up we grew up next to the prison at westbrook on the prison reserve the low security prison because dad was managing it there but so he's a he's he's the most gentle kind beautiful person and you'd meet him and think how on earth did you survive in prisons but he was he did a lot of work and maybe that's where I get it from as well he loved um working with marginalized groups in um in prisons and he and he won um a medal just before he retired and I've I've gone blank but it was a it was a medal we went down to Brisbane we had a big ceremony for it at government house for his work um with transgender um female prisoners um and he always was really passionate about ending the cycle um he did a lot of work with the Numbar prison there about putting in a barista program and a hairdressing program about getting you know um the ladies there trained up in whatever they wanted to do so they had they had options when they left because you know so many of them were victims of, of domestic violence and abuse and ending that cycle started with you know being given opportunities that so many of us take for granted and he was very passionate about that work Mm, I don't think the apple falls far from the tree. <laughs> no, he's, extra- right. he's well, an I, extraordinary I feel, um, person. I don't think I can ask you why do you, why do millennials love kombucha so much? Oh. Um, that's that's too trivial. Why do millennials hate Gen Z when the boomers remain the biggest threat? Stay focused, comrades. <laughs> and who is which one are Gen Z? Which one's the that's bad? me? I'm Gen oh, Z. I think see, um, not we a finish in um, fabulous. <laughs> we we don't own all the houses, um, and, <laughs> but I know that I think that finishes in sixty four, sixty five. So and um, then it's on. Then it's, then and it's they warm. say, um, why do millennials put their hatred in every sing in every song every single time? <laughs> why do they hate Gen Z? So what much? a wonderful creative outlet, though. You yeah. know, pop it in a song. And it's it's gone. And it's and it's gone. And it's, you know, it's right. effectively, you know, old school journaling, you know, but just in, in pop culture <laughs> form. Right. Tell me, um, are you do you watch the Royals? Are you a royal watcher? I am a little bit. Probably more of as I've got older, I've really enjoyed following it along. And we're going to London at the end of the year, and I have to like we'll visit, and I'll probably buy you know a daggy flag, and I'm probably not at the point of buying you know royal wedding memorabilia. But I, I do love it. I think um, I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting institution, and I like tradition. You yeah. like tradition. Who's your favourite royal? For no sophisticated reason, I love Princess Anne for her style. I think she's so spunky. She's graceful. She's. I just think she's a trailblazer. I think she's done. She was the first British royal, I think, to be an Olympian, which I loved. You know, I think she's just. She's got so much personality and she wears speed dealers with a little suit. I just think, go get it, girl. Like, <laughs> What does she wear with a suit? Oh, speed. That might be what a millennial. They're those, I don't even know. You can buy it like service station sunglasses or, you know, beautiful triathletes because they're so professional have to wear those really like streamlined sunglasses. She wears them when she's out and about. I think that's amazing. That I, You know, all the interviews that I've done, I don't ever think I've had a Princess Anne oh, before. So there you are, breaking new ground oh, as per usual. So Princess Anne, she always seems so sort of um, stern to me, yeah. but not to you. And I'd no. be worried that those sunnies might get caught up in the cooked yeah, up hair. you think it would, wouldn't it? And yeah. really the stern face would probably, should terrify me because that, that would normally terrify me. But I just think she's interesting. I think she's... She's got so many layers and so many levels of interest, you know, that she does. She was, I think, the president of BAFTA for a while there. And then, you know, in, into Equestrian, I think she won Sportswoman of the Year. I just think, what a what an interesting person. And again, great style icon. So yeah. shout out to Princess Anne if you're listening. Well, actually, I did, yes. And she does. She listens all the time. Every Princess day. Anne, yes. Um, I did. I forgot to ask you because I know that you love your fashion and you were a model over at Grand Central for a little while. No, you not. I think we were both models, Vic. Let's not scoot over that. So you love your fashion and like, I would do. you love to do more of that? Because secretly I, I would. Yes. I think... The modelling was definitely, and I'll, I'll lose, use modelling very loosely, um, that was really my way of getting into photography during COVID. I thought, I need to photograph something. I can't travel. 
I do have an unhealthy obsession with clothes. I always have since I was a little girl. I'd over-accessorise. Um, my sister's in fashion. You know, it's 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 well and truly kind of ingrained in us. And it's just, it was just in a creative outlet for me, I think. And I just love putting together looks. Just yeah. love it. I spend all night, hours and hours, um, planning our travel and then half of it will be spent on looks. Um, well, you know, I don't see I that there's it. anything wrong with that. No, I think we all need someone. advice. <laughs> That's right. And, um, <laughs> it's my yeah, exactly. My husband might disagree. <laughs> oh, well, you're earning the money too, girl. So, um, all right. So we're, one final question. And somehow or other, I think that you might be a dancing girl. I am a you dancing girl. You do have that, that vibe about you. A poorly you. dancing girl, but oh. I bring, bring great enthusiasm Do you dance worse sport. than Elaine on Seinfeld? Pro- probably worse. Yeah, see, okay, so see, what's, what's concerning is I think she dances good and which might be might be the problem in itself <laughs> uh, well Bronte what is the song that can't keep you off the dance floor I would have to say and I'm thinking about our wedding um would be Valerie and I love the Amy Winehouse um cover that yeah you'd be you'd have to hold you'd have to chain me down to keep me off for that one and probably my husband Jake too we're both probably as enthusiastic and bad dancers as each other oh, so no, I'll lock that in for yeah, my final answer. No, well, that, that's lovely. Bronte we've run out of time but thank you for sharing your journey thank so you. far at 30. Look what you've done so far it's incredible oh, and it's just done with such compassion I think and um, meaning and um, quest for you know, real meaning in your life and I can only oh, imagine that you. the future will be brighter and brighter for you. It's thank just you. lovely. And thank you for being so honest and open about your epilepsy because, no, you know, you. There, it is the questions that people probably don't, would like to ask and, yeah. and have been too afraid to. So yeah. thank you. Well, no, thank much. you for having me, giving me a safe space to do it. <laughs> thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.